The book of Acts in the New Testament tells the story of the, the way the Christian movement spread like wildfire from Jerusalem, where Jesus lived and, and taught and died and, and rose again, up to uh, Samaria, then out to Caesarea, then on up the coast to Antioch and Syria, around to Asia Minor, to Greece and to Rome, and then beyond the book of Acts to the rest of the world. And we've been, for about a year and three months, tracking this movement of Christianity out from Jerusalem in the book of Acts, trying to learn the way that God works today. Because I assume that uh, since he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that if we could discern the way the Christian movement spread in those early days, we will know something important about the way it spreads today. Now... This morning, we have come to chapter 11, verse 19, and a very decisive movement up the coast to Antioch is happening. And I invite you, if you have a Bible and you want to read along with me, to turn to Acts 11, verse 19. We'll read through verse 24. But let me set the stage so that you can see what's really happening here and how important it is. In in chapter 8, the Christian movement uh, burst the bonds of Judaism, as it were, and spilled over into Samaria... And the bridge was built across the chasm of hatred that existed between Samaritans and Jews. And the church extended and united those people. And then in chapter 10, the same thing happened as the bonds were burst a little more widely as the church penetrated down to Caesarea to the Gentile world. And another chasm of alienation and distance was bridged by the gospel and by Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles, Cornelius and his family, were folded into the church. Now, another step here in this text, chapter 11, verse 19, is happening as uh, the Christians, for a reason that's sort of surprising, leave their homeland and penetrate all the way up into Syria, and the church is planted in Antioch. Let's read about that now. Verse 19 of Acts 11. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to none except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number that believed turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a large company was added to the Lord. Now, the sentence that I want you to focus on with me is in verse 23. When Barnabas came from Jerusalem, it says he saw the grace of God and was glad. He saw the grace of God and was glad. Let's just take that one phrase. He saw the grace of God and was glad. That's what I want to have happen this morning to everybody in this room. I would like If God would be pleased to answer my prayer, that every single person in this room would go out saying in your heart, 
I saw the grace of God, and I'm glad. I saw it in the choir. I saw it in the music. I saw it in the prayers. I saw it in the preaching. But mainly, I I want you to, to be able to say when you leave this morning, I saw the grace of God in me. I felt it in me. God manifested and made visible the grace of God in my life. I saw myself and his work in me and his blessings around me and on me in a way I've never seen them before. And I am glad. That's what I would like to have happen as a result of this message this morning. Barnabas, it says, saw the grace of God and he was glad. So my question is this. How did the grace of God become visible in Antioch? Or what did Barnabas see? Isn't it remarkable that it it, it says he saw grace? What does grace look like? What shape is grace? What color is it? He saw grace and it made him glad. And so my question is, how does grace become visible? How did it become visible in Antioch? What did Barnabas see? Now, as I was studying the text, I saw at least three ways. But when I got done writing out my my exposition of the first way, I had used up all my time. So you're only going to get one point sermon this morning instead of a three point sermon. And I'll have to pick it up another time. One way in this text is all I want to talk about that the grace of God becomes visible. And here it is in a summary form. Then I'll show you where I got it in the text. The grace of God became visible when it turned persecution into the preaching of Christ. Persecution was transformed into the preaching of Jesus and many people were added to the Lord. What what Barnabas saw when he arrived at Antioch, having gone all that way, knowing that people had been driven out of Jerusalem like sheep, driven out of their uh, sheepfold with wolves nipping at them and, and making them bloody, they had arrived there and Barnabas wondered what he would see. Would he see a little huddled group of sheep all bloody and self-pitying? Uh, That's not what he saw. What he saw was a church, a thriving church. The sheep... Driven out by persecution, not wanting to leave their homelands and their families, driven out, had gone away to a foreign place. And instead of licking their wounds and feeling sorry for themselves, they had testified to the Lord Jesus and people had come to him, found forgiveness for their sins, eternal life, and were worshiping and serving the Lord together. And Barnabas said, that is the grace of God. Persecution turned into the preaching of Jesus that creates a church and many people on their way to glory. Let me read it for you just so you can see the, the text where it comes from. Verse 19 again. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution. There it is. Scattered like sheep. That's a word like sheep being driven out by a whole pack of wolves. They were scattered at the persecution that arose over Stephen and traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus. Then verse 20. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also preaching, literally gospeling or telling the good news of Jesus Christ. So persecution 
that looked so bleak. It looked like the church was being decimated. It looked like it was all over. It looked like the end of the road for a lot of, of Christians. And suddenly, in a matter of, I don't know, months, the grace of God is visible again in Antioch. And people are responding to these sheep who had been driven out by the wolves in Jerusalem. If one thing is clear from the Bible, it is that God does not get his people out of suffering, but uses suffering to get his people to God. If anything is clear from the Bible, is that suffering is the meat and potatoes of people in this world. As long as this age lasts and Jesus comes back, when the new heavens and the new earth will be established, until that happens, you will eat pain. Whether you are Christ's or not Christ's, there will be suffering. The beauty is that grace takes that suffering and turns it into substance in your life or singing or salvation. Now, that's the point of the message. The grace of God becomes visible when it takes persecution and turns it into the good news of Jesus Christ in a lot of people's lives. And what I want to do for the rest of the time is just give you some illustrations of that today. Because I believe God is like that today. He wasn't just like that a long time ago. That's the way he's handling persecution today. That's the way he's handling pain today. And maybe... God will let you discover something from his word this morning that will enable you to reinterpret your life. I had to reinterpret my life in the retrospect of 20 years. I'll tell you a little bit about that at the end, but maybe that'll be happening in your life as I talk. Here's illustration number one, just to show you that the same kind of missionary activity as a result of persecution and suffering is happening today as happened then. In the 1930s, the early 1930s, um, before Korea had been divided into North and South, Japan invaded Korea. The result of that invasion was a tremendous upheaval that resulted in a lot of refugees, Korean refugees, being uh, dispersed. One of the places to which thousands of them were dispersed was to the USSR and around a, a city named Vladivostok. And among many of those Christians, among many of those Koreans, were Christians. And so God had transplanted, like a missionary movement, without anybody's intention but his own, Christians out of Korea into the USSR around this city called Vladivostok, and they began to make themselves at home there and weave their way into uh, Russian society. Stalin, later on in the 30s, Joseph Stalin, began to be concerned about this concentration of Koreans around Vladivostok because Vladivostok was one of the places where there was a strong, uh, focused center for weapons development. And so, knowing that there was a kind of security risk there, he decided that uh, he would break up that community and disperse them into five places around the USSR. So he becomes God's mission board here to get all these Korean Christians positioned in places where nobody else could go. One of the places 
where he dispersed a lot of these Korean refugees was to a city in the middle of the USSR named Tashkent, which happens to be right at the middle of about 20 million Uzbek Muslims with a lot of Kazakhs as well. A people group who had for a long time been very resistant to any Western intrusion of bringing the message of Jesus Christ, who isn't Western, by the way. He's a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. He's not a Western or Occidental uh, white Anglo-Saxon Saxon person. He is a Jew. And so uh, they were resisting the Western influence, and God had another way of getting Jesus into the Uzbek society. He used Joseph Stalin in order to reposition Korean refugees who had been put there by a persecution or an invasion of Japanese into the Korean Peninsula. Now, the story comes to an amazing climax, and I don't think the story is about to be over yet. Last see, June, a year ago now, June 2nd, 1990, with Glasnost and Perestroika and everything uh, blowing out of the lid in the USSR, in Tashkent, a uh, American Korean evangelist arrives to preach. And he gathers, because he's Korean, a very strong audience and hearing from the Korean people who've now been there for almost 50 or 60 years. And they had woven themselves into uh, Uzbek society and were accepted by the Uzbeks. But many of them were underground Christians during all those years. And here, the lid's off, the way is open, a Korean-American evangelist comes, he holds public services, he preaches, and there's this great movement to Christ. And now, with the evangelist gone, all these Korean Christians revived and renewed are the salt of the earth among the Uzbek Muslim peoples in the middle of the USSR. Now, that is a remarkable thing. And if Barnabas were here today and he were to arrive in Tashkent among the Uzbeks and he were to look around, I think Barnabas would say, this is the grace of God turning persecution in the 1930s into a great saving people movement in the 1990s. What a great God we serve. So God is still doing the same thing he did then. If his people will not, by whatever reason, either they cannot or they will not move, he will move them. And if he has to move them with pain, he'll move them, us, with pain. Now, there's a principle here that I want to get out into our individual lives. Because you might feel like, well, I'm not a missionary. And that's neat that he works in those macro ways. But what's that got to do with me? The principle is pain... And suffering, whether you're being displaced and turned into a refugee from your home, or whether it's any other kind of pain in your life, God, sovereign and good that he is, takes pain and begins to turn it into gospel. For you and for others around you, if you're just watching and listening and responsive and sensitive. Two illustrations. Two years ago when I was in Manila, I've told you some of this before, but it was so powerful in my own mind that I remembered it when I was thinking of what I could use as an illustration of this truth today. I heard uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson broke her neck in a swimming accident when she was about 18. I don't know how long ago that was, maybe 20 years ago or more. And now she is disabled 
and yet she is ministering around the world, especially to disabled people, and calling people to trust in the sovereignty of God and believe in his purposes in pain. And I remember her sitting up there in her wheelchair on the platform. Here's 4,000 of us from 170 countries around the world. And she was giving a talk about ministry to the disabled and God's work in her life. And, and near the end, she, she can, she's got this much movement. She can lift her arms up and down with the braces on. She lifted her arms like this and with a loud voice she said, This is the prison where God set me free. I'll never, never forget that line. This is the prison where God set me free. And the interpretation that followed went something like this. I have experienced so much frustration, so much confinement, so much pain and discouragement that I have had to throw myself on God again and again and realize that true freedom in life doesn't really have to do with walking, doesn't really have to do with swimming and skiing and running and being beautiful and standing in front of people. Really, freedom has to do with forgiveness it has to do with repentance. It has to do with acceptance. It has to do with love. It has to do with hope. It has to do with eternal life. And someday in the kingdom, having my arms and legs back. But true, genuine, deep, heartfelt liberty is not being able to walk your way into sin. It's being able to know that God is for you in the midst of pain. And so there are thousands of people like that around the world who have met Jesus Christ, know his power, have been delivered from the inner bondage of bitterness and anger and resentment and have been set free in the prison of their confinements. I'd love to tell you more stories about what we heard about the suffering church and people who served in parts of the communist world in prison and God met them in incredible ways in their prison cells and set them free. But let me give you just that illustration I promised at the beginning about my own experience of God's enabling me to look back on parts of my life and reinterpret them with lessons I had learned about the sovereign goodness of God and what he was up to when I never could have dreamed he was up to such a thing. For those of you who have been around a while, you've heard me tell you in passing about the difficulty I had as a teenager in speaking in front of groups from about the eighth grade on until a remarkable breakthrough when I was a sophomore in college, I could not speak in front of a group. Not a Sunday school class, not a class in school, not a church group or anything. And it wasn't any kind of ordinary little thing where you say, oh, sure, everybody gets nervous. That's okay. Just kind of smile and nobody sees your knees knocking. Whenever people said that to me, I just burned inside because nobody understood. Almost nobody. I would tremble so bad with my hands that I would try to hold on to things. I couldn't hold up anything like this because it would shake so bad everybody would become self-conscious and look down. My throat and my shoulders would become so tense that the words would not come out. If I tried to force them out, if I had to for some reason, they were so abnormal that they couldn't communicate anything of significance. My heart, I can remember one time in the ninth grade, just before I was supposed to read one paragraph to report a scientific experiment that we had done, I looked down and my heart was beating so fast it was making my shirt jump up and down and I thought, how many other people are seeing this? And I walked out of the room before the turn came to me to read my paragraph. They were very humiliating days. Kept me from a lot of activities. And uh, now... 
from the perspective that I have, and it took me about 20 years to get this perspective, I see what God was doing in those terrible days. And I call them terrible. You know, whenever I tell you that God uses suffering and God uses pain and frustration in your life, please do not interpret me to mean, and that all of a sudden makes the pain go away. That all of a sudden makes it a rah-rah kind of experience. As I look back on those five years, I would never want to go through those again. Ever. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm old now. I'm mature. I can look back and say, oh, sure, teenagers have troubles. Baloney! It was horrible. I would never want to go through it again. And so I'm not saying that because I have a reinterpretation of what happened that gives it meaning in my life now, that it was easy, nor will yours be. My interpretation of what was happening, and nobody could have ever dreamed it unless they were a prophet, is that God was making a preacher. God was clogging my mouth in order to fill my heart. He broke me again and again and made me desperate to find in him what I couldn't find from anybody else. He cut me off from the track of popularity and drove me into his word looking for answers to why the hundreds of prayers that a kid made like Lord, please just let me be able to give what's on this three by five card in Sunday school class tomorrow without breaking down and never having my prayers answered for five years. I got out my old King James Bible that my mother gave me when I was 15 last night, uh, and I started flipping through it just to see the sorts of things that were underlined real heavily, to see if I could get back into that experience, because I can remember crying myself to sleep at night with my Bible, trying to find an answer for why he wasn't answering. And I found in Matthew 8, right at the beginning, where the leper comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, "Uh, if you will, you can make me clean. And I had circled, if you will, with big red, and just kind of, read it all in, just like that was the heaviest thing on the page. If you will, you can make me clean. But for five years, he didn't will it. And I couldn't understand what he was doing. But today, I think I know a little bit of what he was doing after a perspective of 30 years or so. He was making a preacher. And he was doing it in a way that nobody else would have done it. You don't clog the mouths of preachers. You give them experience so that they can speak. All the embarrassment, all the humiliation, all the loneliness, crying out to God, I see now as a gift of God, a very severe mercy, very painful gift. And I think if Eugene Lawrence, oh, Eugene Lawrence, my pastor, my whole growing up days in White Oak Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina, who sympathized with me and never required anything of me that required public speaking. If he was sitting where you are sitting right now, he would look at me and he would say with Barnabas, I have seen the grace of God and I am glad. Every day's pain, I believe, every day's pain was turned for my good. What a difference, I thought last night. 
What a difference in my life if I had never on afternoons sat on the front hill of my house and looked out across Delwood Valley to Piney Mountain and watched the sun go down and listened to those trains, trains, trains off in the distance and thought, what if I would just get on one of those trains and disappear so that nobody would ever ask again why the preacher's kid can't give a book report? What a difference it would be in my life if I had never sat under the dogwood tree. Mother's Day after Mother's Day during those five years trying to write poems for my mother so that I could help her feel that I felt she was the only person in the world who really understood. How many times she sat down on the edge of my bed as I was utterly perplexed as to why it wouldn't go away and just cry with me. What a difference it would have made if I had been on the fast, slick, easy track of popularity. So I look back and I'm glad that God was clogging my mouth to fill my heart. And I just testify to you personally that the grace of God is real and that for me, it was five years on that point, and I don't doubt that in 20 years from now, God willing, I will tell you stories about these days and what they mean from the perspective of 20 days, 20 years. So I just plead with you as I close, pretty much the same way that Barnabas pleaded with the church in Antioch in verse 23. You see the way verse 23 goes on? He saw the grace of God and was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and with steadfast purpose. So he exhorted them all to be faithful to the Lord, to stay with the Lord, to trust the Lord. So that's my closing plea to you. Wherever you are in your struggles, trust the grace of God this morning. Don't, don't trust yourself. Don't put your trust in your job. Don't put your trust in relationships. Don't put your trust in the government. Don't put your trust in money. Don't put your trust in the American way. Don't put your trust in any kind of social dynamics. Put your trust in the one thing that is strong and abiding, God and His grace. Because the beautiful thing about God's grace is that it takes persecution in Jerusalem and turns it to preaching in Antioch. It takes refugee displacement in Korea and makes it gospel, good news, and redemption in the middle of the USSR 60 years later. It takes a young, beautiful, 18-year-old cripple and turns her into a worldwide emissary of the grace of God in suffering. And it takes a teenager who wonders why in the world with a preacher father and an intelligent mother and a gifted sister, I can't do it and never will be able to do it so far as I know. Why? And makes out of him a preacher. Would you take the card from in your worship folder? And as we close and I pray, I just want to show you what this is and ask you to consider filling it out. There is something on this card for everybody in this room to check or to say. We designed it so that 
whether you've been here for 60 years or whether you're brand new this morning, this card is useful to communicate to us. And so as we sing together for the next five minutes or so, would you fill out this card and then I'm going to come back after a song or three and and have you pass them to the aisle and take them up. So this is a way of responding to us and to God of what God's doing in your life this morning. And the songs are means of giving you a chance to just meditate and absorb what I've been saying. And I'd like to pray with you now as we move into a time of filling them out and singing together. Gracious God and Father, I thank you that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I thank you that though some people might mean it for evil, you always mean it for your people for good. I thank you that persecution can become the preaching of good news and a Japanese invasion can become the evangelization of the Uzbek people. I thank you that Johnny Erickson could be set free by the confinements of paralysis. And I thank you for clogging my lips in order to fill my heart. And I pray that you would grant eyes to see for every person in this room what you are doing by grace, visibly, in their lives. In Jesus' name.